Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 27 to 30 this morning. Page 1161. Ten years ago, on February 24th, 2008, a young man walked into a Baptist church. It had been a while since he had been in church, and it was the first time he was in a Baptist church. The pastor opened up his Bible to Proverbs 23 and preached as the snow fell gently outside. It was cold outside, but there was warmth inside the church as people gathered around God's word. But inside the young man's heart, it was cold. So he didn't believe a word of what was said, and he just thought everyone was wasting their time. He wasn't seeking God, but God was seeking him. He would come to church and then spend the rest of the week convincing himself that he was right and the Bible was wrong. But as the year went on, he found it harder and harder to stay in his pride. The word of God was breaking down his unbelief by the power of the Holy Spirit one sermon at a time. The word was challenging him, and eventually that word changed him. Well, that church is South Shore Baptist, and that young man is me. When I came here 10 years ago, I opposed God. I rejected him and lived for myself. Perhaps at the end of this sermon, you'll stand in applause to express your appreciation for me. But please don't put your hands together for me. I am nothing apart from God's grace. He deserves all the credit, all the applause for anything good that I did here. In fact, the only thing that I brought to the table was the sin that needed to be forgiven. So by all means, stand in applause, but don't do it for me. Do it unto him. Because he opened up my blind eyes and revived my dead heart through the preaching of his word in a church that loved God's word. So I think it's only fitting that in my final sermon to you as your pastor that I just encourage you to keep being that kind of church, a place where a hard-hearted, prideful man can walk in the door and hear the true gospel, and not just hear the true gospel, but find a church family united around that gospel and partnering together in real, true gospel ministry. There are several passages in the Bible where I could make that point, but I chose this one specifically because I want to encourage you. Because gospel ministry is getting harder and harder in post-Christian America. And Christians and churches are either conforming to the world around them or they are sitting on the sidelines in fear. And I want to remind you that any suffering for Christ is worth it. I want to encourage you to focus as a church with more zeal and more passion for the ministry of the gospel. For many years now, it's been my quiet prayer that the Lord would use his faithfulness in my life as an example to this church that God still calls New Englanders out of darkness, that God still makes enemies his friends, 
that God is still pleased and delighted to call people to himself and to shower them with his grace and to call them into his service. And that God still uses the local church as the place to call and equip men and women for ministry. So that's why I picked this passage. In fact, that's what Paul is doing for the Philippians. This church and Paul, they love each other. They've partnered together in ministry together. They have a long and good history together. And they're both, both facing a world that was making it hard to be a Christian, hard to do gospel ministry as the culture tried to force them and squeeze them into its mold and, and get them to abandon a lifestyle that was consistent with the gospel. So Paul writes to encourage them to press on with joy, to stand firm on the gospel and strive together as a church in gospel ministry. So his message to them in this passage is this, as citizens of heaven, live lives worthy of the gospel by standing firm as a church family united in gospel ministry. Let's hear it from Paul's pen. Would you read with me Philippians chapter 1, verse 27? This is God's word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, And now here that I still have. Three points. Point number one, the main goal of the church. Point number two, how we carry out this goal. And then finally, point number three, we get encouragement to carry out this goal. Let's begin with point number one, the main goal of the church. Paul begins in verse 27 with this phrase, whatever happens. Has this idea of no matter what. Above all, Paul is writing from prison, actually, and he's not sure if he will get out and see them face to face or if he will be stuck in prison and only hear about them. But either way, whether he sees them or not, he wants them to focus or to refocus on one thing in particular. What is it? He says, conduct conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's headline phrase for this entire passage. Everything else underneath it is supporting what he means by that. It's all subordinate to that main phrase. So we should spend some time with it. And if we don't read carefully, we might think that Paul is telling us that we somehow make ourselves worthy of God's grace through our conduct. But the rest of the letter won't allow for that interpretation. And if you read the Bible, you'll learn very quickly that no one can make themselves worthy of God's grace. No one can make themselves fit for heaven. 
I mean, we can't even live up to our own standards of what is right and wrong, our own standards of justice. How can we ever live up to God's? So it's not that we make ourselves worthy. So what does it mean? Well, this opening phrase, conduct yourself, is actually a political word, which in Greek means to conduct yourselves as citizens. It's a call to line up your lifestyle with the beliefs and the priorities of your home country. Philippi, where the Philippian church is located, was well known for its Roman pride, for being, having pride in their Roman citizenship. They loved being Roman. They insisted on the Roman way of life, the Roman religion. It was either get on board with the Roman way or get out. In fact, this was a colony where former Roman war heroes would retire and end out their days celebrating their Roman citizenship. So the Philippian church was well acquainted with the call to citizenship. But Paul is not telling them to live as Roman citizens and to adopt a Roman way of life. No, he's calling them to live as citizens of heaven and to adopt a lifestyle that's consistent with the gospel. Where am I getting this whole citizen of heaven idea? Well, actually, turn to Philippians 3, verse 20 real quick. This word for citizenship only occurs two times in all of Paul's writings, in chapter 1, verse 27, and in chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. There's our word. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, the Philippians were living in Philippi, but they were called to live as citizens of heaven in Philippi. Just like we are called to live as citizens of heaven in America. So no matter what, we should make every effort to line up our lives with the values and the priorities of our heavenly home. God is so worthy of our lives. The gospel is so good. In fact, let's just spend a little time here just sitting with its goodness. You know, before any human, breathe, any human being breathed in the air, the Father planned to send the Son to save his people. And for the joy set before him, the eternal glorious Son didn't white-knuckle his radiance and his majesty, but took on the form of a servant the one through whom the world was made left heaven to be slain for sinners who glory in their shame. And the Father didn't send him with a frown on his face. He didn't send him unwillingly or reluctantly. And Christ didn't come. He came submissively and voluntarily, joyfully and compassionately. He obeyed the law perfectly. He never sinned, but he lived righteously. And that righteous life, that holy and pure and life that is pleasing to God is given to us through faith. The gospel is so worth our lives. And we can keep on going. Jesus goes to the cross aware of the horror. He's surrounded by a mob that cries out, crucify, as he drinks the entire cup of God's wrath in the place of the mockers. The sinless, righteous son hangs cursed on a tree 
for rebels like you and me. The light of the world hangs in darkness for the sins that we committed. His heart stops and all that is left is a lifeless mass of human flesh pinned to a cross. And there's the picture of what our sins deserve. The cost of our freedom, the price of our rescue. The God-man dead. But death had no claim on him. Because the father would honor his promise to glorify his son with the glory that he had before the world was created. Air fills his lungs and his eyes open wide. The son of man lives even though he was crucified. So now he is death's defeater. He's the new life giver. He's the resurrected Lord, the very beginning of the new creation. He's the one worthy of all our attention and the one deserving of all of our affection. The gospel is so worth our lives. And we can keep on going. The Father and the Son send the Spirit to apply to our hearts the work of Christ in regeneration. He makes us born again to live as new creations. He shows us our sinfulness and our filthiness, but then he shines the spotlight on Christ and his beauty and his sufficiency and his excellence. He gives us the gift of faith so that we can respond to the call, come to me. And he's the guarantee of our inheritance until our king comes for us. The gospel is so worthy of our lives. And if we had time, we could keep on going. So, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that highlights the worth of the gospel. So that's why we should. God is so worthy. But how do we do it? How do we live as worthy citizens of heaven on earth? Well, that's the next part. That's point number two. Point number one is the main goal of the church. Point number two is how we carry out this goal. And Paul summarizes it as uh, in this phrase, standing firm. He says two things. We stand firm in unity and we stand firm in mission. Conduct worthy of the gospel looks like standing firm as a church family united in gospel ministry. These two themes of of standing firm in the face of opposition and unity, these two things, they just keep showing up over and over again in this passage. Check out a few of these. Verse 27, obviously we have our word stand firm. It also mentions contending. Verse 28 says, without being frightened. Verse 29 mentions suffering. Verse 30 talks about a struggle. So this theme of standing firm in the face of opposition, it just keeps showing up over and over again in this passage. But not only that, but also the theme of unity. Well, first, the yous here, they're all plural. So this passage is not to us as isolated individuals, but Paul is speaking to a gathered congregation. He's speaking to a church family. But also look at the words that he uses. You know, verse 27, he talks about the one spirit. He also says that we contend as one man. And we learn at least two things from this theme of unity in this little section here. 
we learn about the source of our strength and the necessity for cooperation. First, let's look at the source of our strength. You see that phrase there. It says, in one spirit, in verse 27. Well, every other time that phrase appears in Paul's writings, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So, we live as citizens of earth only by the empowering work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, we can't stand by ourselves. Our, our knees are spiritually strengthened by God's indwelling Spirit. He's the one who allows us to stand firm in unity as a church. Second, we see the necessity of cooperation. So we need God's strength by the Spirit, but this strength is experienced and revealed and showcased in the committed fellowship and relationships of the local church as they carry out Christ's mission. You know, God doesn't expect us to stand alone. You try to stand alone as a Christian, you'll either fall or have a miserably exhausting Christian life. You need a committed fellowship of a local church. Because how do we stand? What does the passage say? The end of verse 27 says, we stand by contending as one man. This word contending is likely a military term. At this time in history, the Spartan infantry was a nearly unstoppable force because their unique style of fighting called phalanx. And the success of this style of fighting depended upon the soldiers working in cooperation as one unit. They had to fight as one man. Just before the collision and battle between two armies, the, the Spartans would come close together and lock their shields so that their shield not only covered themselves, but also the person to their left. And then they would move forward up the battlefield as one man, in unison, pushing back the enemy. Here was the irony of, of that style of fighting. If you exhausted yourself to protect yourself, if you spent all your energy just on your own stand, you would die in battle. But it's when you protected the person to your left and moved forward in unison that the battle was won and the soldiers survived. Well, it's the same in the church. If you only focus on your individual stand for the gospel, you'll likely die in battle. As citizens of heaven, we contend for the gospel together, fighting a spiritual battle in the strength that comes from God's Spirit. Together we stand firm in unity for the gospel. I think this also helps us understand what unity is and what unity is not. You know, because Christian unity is what? In the spirit and for the gospel. You know, we don't want to confuse unity with uniformity. And when there's a disagreement in the church, unity builds Uh, cooperation and agreement through open dialogue and transparency and a spirit of love and humility as the church stands firm in their common bond in Christ and his mission. Uniformity, on the other hand, well, it maneuvers towards status quo, maneuvers towards consensus in an effort to keep status quo. It is driven by fear and has a distaste for open dialogue. 
But real Christian unity is driven by trust in the Lord. It has nothing to fear. It knows that because of our common bond in Christ and stand for his mission, there's no disagreement that we can't work through openly and honestly, so it moves towards people and it creates trust. Christian unity lets diversity of opinion breathe openly, but then it asks, how does the gospel shape our disagreement? And how does God's word help us move forward as a church? So conduct of heaven's citizens, it looks like standing firm in unity. But second, we stand firm united in gospel ministry. You know, check out the end of verse 27 again. All right, we contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. That is for the advance of the gospel, for the cause of the gospel, in the ministry of the gospel that awakens and produces faith. I need to pause here and just tell you that uniting in gospel ministry with you has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I praise God for the honor that he has given me to stand with you and to represent Christ and his gospel with you. And every Sunday as we would gather together as a church body to sing God's praises and to hear from his word, we were relocking arms once again for the sake of Christ and his mission. And the Lord gave me the blessing of doing that over 500 times with you. And on a day like today, that feels like far too few. There are so many things I'll miss about this church. Uh, I'll miss growth groups, uh, men's retreats, time with staff, elder prayer meetings, chit-chat with you after service. I'll even miss quarterly business meetings. But nothing has been as special to me as gathering Sunday after Sunday with you to worship our great God. And every time we did, we were saying, for your glory, Lord, we stand for the gospel together. So thank you. On behalf of Stacy and I, thank you for letting us stand with you. And we by God's grace, are able to leave here as joyful people because of the abundance of blessing that the Lord has poured out upon us through this local church family. I'm not done yet. I was worried that might sound like a conclusion. It was an aside. So now, my church family, let me exhort you Never stop standing firm for the gospel. Don't abandon it. Whatever happens, no matter what, above all, don't cheapen it with worldly methods and measures of success. Don't be ashamed of it. Cherish it. Let it be what God has said it is in his word. And let all of its richness and depth fall upon you. Don't only do that for your own worship. Do that so a former enemy of the cross, like me, can stumble into a church and hear the true gospel. And I belabor that point because 
you are and will experience opposition for your stand for the gospel. Just like the Philippians were. Because this mission has opponents. Verse 28. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I have a relative that lives in Berkshire County. It's in Western Mass. And he has a long, windy driveway that's longer than most side streets, and it's surrounded by thick, dense woods. When I was much younger, my nana, brother, cousin, and I were walking to the end of that driveway, and when we got to the end, a gigantic German shepherd jumped out of the bushes, and he showed off his fangs as he growled at us. And we were far too away from the house to turn back and run. So my nana knowing that if one of us ran away in panic, that would only embolden the dog to attack, told us to stand firm as calmly as possible. Although inside we were afraid, we didn't give in to our panic. This word here for frightened, it only shows up one time in the entire Bible, and it has this idea of being startled into panic. And it was used for a panicked horse that would uh, cause a stampede. You know, panic always makes things worse. And when we panic in the face of opposition for the gospel, well, we will either encourage people to attack or we will turn them into our enemies. We will forget that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. When we panic in the face of opposition to the gospel, it can hurt our evangelism because after all, they, well, they're my enemy. The Philippian church had much to be frightened by. Remember, this was a retirement community for former Roman war heroes. And the the Christians associated themselves with Jesus, an enemy of Rome, crucified on a Roman cross in in a Roman military colony. Life was hard. They likely experienced threats and intimidation and persecution on a daily basis because of their stand. Paul is urging them with joy to stand and not give in to their panic. Persecution wears many masks to accomplish its goal, which is to keep you from standing firm on the gospel. Persecution can be physical, beatings, death, imprisonment. It also can be psychological belittling, mocking, intimidation, you know, shame tactics. This psychological persecution is what we experience in America. We should thank God that the persecution we experience is not nearly as violent and as severe as what most of our brothers and sisters face around the world. But we shouldn't ignore the shape that persecution takes in our context just because it's not as horrific as other forms. Because if we do, we won't be able to recognize it. And we won't be able to stand. And we will continue to experience pressure to abandon the lifestyle of heaven's citizens and to adopt the lifestyle of the world around us. And we all feel it. In our schools, on the job site, in the office, in our families. And if we're honest, we feel it sometimes even in our own hearts. 
we need to be encouraged to take a stand. And that's how Paul ends this passage. He ends it with encouragement. That's point number three. Point number one was the main goal of the church. Point number two was how we carry out that goal by standing firm in unity and standing firm in mission. Point three is encouragement to carry out the goal. Paul says two things. He talks about the sign and the gift. First, the sign. Verse 28, about halfway through, Paul says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. You know, the Philippians likely needed help making sense of their suffering for the gospel. It could have been thinking that their suffering meant that God had abandoned them or that God was disappointed or or displeased with them. But in reality, the opposite was true. So Paul writes to give them a positive view of suffering that would encourage them to take a stand. Their suffering for the gospel was far from a sign of God's abandonment. It was actually a sign of God's salvation, that God will one day rescue them from this fallen world. Our ability to stand with Christ in the face of opposition is a sign to us that we belong to Christ. Strangely, persecution contributes to our assurance of salvation. Jesus talks about this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking to uh, the citizens of the kingdom. He says in verse 11 of chapter 5, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 10 of chapter 5, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice! Not because suffering is great, it's not. But because our ability to stand firm in the face of opposition is a sign to us that God has given us what he gave the prophets of old. Eyes to see what the world cannot, that the kingdom of God is worth our suffering. And those who suffer as citizens of the kingdom will receive the full blessing and reward for their suffering. You know, verse 28, it just makes the complexity of our world very simple, doesn't it? You either stand for the gospel or you do not. Those who stand for the gospel, well, they will be saved. But those who do not, what does it say? They will be destroyed. God, at the end, will set everything right. Because God is good and he expresses perfect justice, he will put an end to all evil forever. And that includes people who oppose him and his gospel and his church. That's you this morning. I've been there. I live there. But God is gracious, and he delights to make his enemies his sons and his daughters. And God will actually use the suffering of his people as a sign to the world that they are on the wrong side and that a judgment is coming. So if you oppose Christianity, listen to what the suffering of the church says about Christ. 
it says that Christ is worth our suffering. And the amount of pain or difficulty that we will endure for something, it reveals how valuable we think something is. And if your house is on fire and your child is inside, you will run into the house because what is inside is is worth your suffering. Well, the suffering of the church for Christ is a sign to the world of how valuable Christ is. Natasha Stanova was a teenage Christian in 1960s Soviet Union where it was illegal to be a Christian. And she experienced several beatings by a KGB agent named Sergei Kordakov. He was responsible for stomping out the underground church in the Soviet Union, and he, complete, he completed over 150 violent raids on the secret church. At one of these raids, Sergei and his men came across a girl named Natasha. And Sergei had a man named Victor beat her. Three days later, Sergei and his men storm into another underground Christian service. And there's Natasha. Enraged, uh, Sergei takes matters into his own hands, and he beats Natasha by himself, himself even more severely, assuming this would surely put an end to her gathering with the Christians. Well, one week later, Sergei and Victor kick down another door, and who's there? Natasha. Beaten and bruised, but standing firm for the gospel with her brothers and sisters. Another man who is with them raises his hand to hit Natasha again when Victor, her former persecutor, jumped in between and said, nobody touch her. Nobody. She has something that we don't have. Nobody touch her. Sergei was stunned that one of his most brutal men, Victor, was now protecting the Christians. See, Natasha's stand for the gospel in the face of opposition was a sign that something was worthy of her suffering. Her suffering was part of her evangelism and a clear sign to Sergei and Victor that she had something that they did not. Shortly after this, Sergei left the KGB after becoming a Christian. And he writes about Natasha in his book called The Persecutor. This is what he says. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelieving suffering, unbelievable suffering. But there she was again. Even tough Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I felt for the first time that the believers may not be the fools and enemies I had thought they were. Natasha had shaken all my notions about believers. So the first piece of encouragement is that our courageous stand for the gospel is a sign, a sign to the world that a judgment is coming and a sign to us, a comforting, assuring proof that we belong to Christ. In building on this, Paul gives us the last piece of encouragement. He says that suffering for Christ is a gift from God. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but 
also to suffer for him. Guess how this word granted can also be translated? Graced. It's where we get our word for grace. And in this verse, we're graced with two things. We're gifted with two things. First, belief, that we're given the gift of faith, the ability to see ourselves as sinful and see Christ as the only way to be reconciled to God. But it's the next part of the verse that is utterly shocking. And we're tempted to even think maybe that it's a misprint. It's the next part of the verse that makes us a little uncomfortable. We've not only been given the gift of faith in Christ, we've also been graced with the gift of suffering for Christ. Well, what in the world does it mean that we've been given the gift of suffering for Christ? Well, first, we need to just clear two things up. First, uh, suffering is not good. Suffering is part of a fallen, sinful world. And God will one day put an end to all suffering. Suffering isn't good. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't use suffering for good. Number two, the suffering Paul is speaking about is something specific. He's not talking about suffering in general, you know, health problems or, or grief. He is talking about, right, the context suggests that he's talking about persecution-type suffering. And this is about suffering for Christ. But how was suffering for Christ a gift from God? Well, we've also already mentioned two things, right? We've mentioned assurance and evangelism. Right, that when we suffer for Christ, it's, uh, a, it shows us that we belong to Christ. And number two, that when we suffer for Christ, it highlights the worth of the gospel and that helps our evangelism. But I think in this verse, Paul has something else at the front of his mind. Suffering for Christ brings us into closer fellowship and intimacy with him. Look at Philippians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, because it's in that verse where we get our answer. Paul tells us, verse 10 of chapter 3 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Christianity is all about knowing Christ. It's all about being with him. It's all about fellowship and intimacy with him. And when we experience suffering for the cause for which he suffered, well, then we are brought into closer intimacy and a closer bond with him. And we know this works in our human relationships because whenever we go through something with someone else, it forms a closer bond. There's mutual understanding and experiential knowledge. We're able to move deeper in the relationship, move towards each other easily, understand each other more fully. Well, suffering for the gospel allows you to share in an experience with Jesus. So if you want to know the sweetness of fellowship with Christ, well, then you have to take up your cross and follow Christ. If you want to know the power of his resurrection, well, then you have to embrace him in his death. If you want to, to savor him in all of his glory, well, then you have to sit with him in his shame. 
And if you want to know the depths of his love for you, well, then you have to taste the suffering that he endured for you. Suffering is the path to knowing Christ more intimately. When we suffer for the gospel, God is so faithful. Christ meets us and ministers uh, to us in a unique and powerful way. So any suffering that tastes sour will only sweeten your relationship with Jesus. Any shame that you experience, he'll replace with the honor of fellowship with him. Any bruise that you experience for him, he will turn into a balm for your soul. Because on that path of suffering that you walk for him, he meets you every step of the way. It's a familiar path to him because he's already walked it for you. And on that road, you'll be able to embrace him more fully with the experiential knowledge that only comes from picking up your cross and following him. Only a gracious God gives such wonderful gifts to people he loves. And all of them flow from the fountain of suffering for the cause of Christ. So, my dear church family, my friends, let the Lord grace us with such a struggle for the gospel at South Shore Baptist Church and at Tremont Temple Baptist. And although in his providence he has chosen that we would not share in this struggle together in the same church, we will share our stories of suffering as citizens of heaven around the throne when we have all run our race. And when we are finally home, we will be able to say, I'm confident of this, no matter what we experience for him now, we will be able to say, God was worth it all. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our gracious God, who gives gifts of belief and gifts of suffering to draw us closer to yourself. Oh Lord, may we move forward from this day in joyful confidence, standing firm on the gospel as your church for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen.